And we also have um, a product called AI Hub, which kind of takes in a multitude of data, is a little more focused on answering, you know, answering the question of once you have the data, you have an alarm, now what do you do? Kind of trying to close that loop. Um, so trying to bring in multitudes of data for various components and track, you know, the repair cycle and learning um, from looking into the damage or alert or alarm that you're getting for your wind farm. Welcome to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Alan Hall. I'm here with Dr. Rosemary Barnes and Joel Saxon. we got a very packed show today. Probably our best show ever, actually. Well, we're going to talk about why uh, we keep hearing that some blackouts are looming in the United States uh, and what we think uh, might be some contributing factors and possibly how we can fix that. Um, and then uh, that will flow as well into uh, our uh, presidential administration engaging the Defense Production Act to uh, inject uh, half a billion dollars or so into the uh, renewable energy industry to get it moving a little bit faster. And then I have a, a guest on, Mega Rotondo from Onyx Insight. We have a, a really in-depth conversation about blades, blade design, and predictive blade failure. And we're going to talk about a new factory being opened up for an alternative storage technology, alternative to lithium iron. They're compressing CO2 and they've just opened their first battery facility in Sardinia, Italy. All right. First topic, blackouts in the United States. So there's a lot of discussion on the news channels and even especially online. There's going to be blackouts in certain parts of the United States, or at least that's a prediction. And the discussion point seems to be related around two things, climate change and renewables, solar and wind being the two primary ones, not hydro. Okay, so the, there's a there's a uh, sort of consensus brewing because of the political nature of what's happening in the states at the moment that solar and wind are going to take down the grid. Very similar to what happened in Texas during the ice storm. But in, this is a, the hotter side of that. This is a summertime case. And so, uh, Joel, I think, it, Joel, you had poked at me about this. So I went and did a bunch of research and I went to the online resources where there's actual data. And it's... It's a complicated mix. If you can imagine a country as large as the United States, it has 330-ish million people, and the electrical grid for such a large country, it's going to be a combination of factors, and it's not universal. It's not solar and wind. Uh, but I think some of the, the rationale of why they're going to have grid problems this summer should be discussed because it, they do need to be addressed on some level. So the middle of the United States, where Joel, where you're at right now, uh, pretty much Wisconsin all the way down to like Louisiana. It's like one big electrical grid for the, the yep. most part. And a lot of coal plants are coming offline. Uh, they're just going to shut them down. It's difficult to get in coal. Some of the mines are shutting down. So they're taking something like just like two to three percent of the production is, is being eliminated over time. Uh, they're also having some issues of uh, the... Power line's going down. They have a major, like it's like a four-mile section of power line that went down that they need to get up and running again. But some interesting things on the western side of the United States. So the lack of snow over the wintertime hurts hydro, right? So the, the hydro dams don't 
which is much energy. So that's affecting California and sort of the southwest of the United States. And then Texas, uh, there's a prediction that Texas is going to be warmer, and it sounds like it's sort of headed that way right now. That's just putting it's additional. It's already there. Yeah. yeah it's already this week, there. it's already it's like, there. It's tri triple digits all over the state right now. Yeah. Right. So ERCOT, who is the Texas uh, power system, has extra power to deal with those situations in wind and solar. So wind and solar are providing the power in the afternoon and late afternoons to handle the excess demand. But also in the Midwest, there's a quasi drought. So they're having issues of like in the Missouri River, which is used to cool a bunch of power plants. There's not as much water in the river, so it's not as efficient to cool. So there's a variety of different reasons why the grid in the United States is having trouble. And if you can imagine, if you have power, excess power in one part of the country, you may not necessarily be able to get it to the other part of the country who needs it, just the way the grid's set up. So as we're talking about this, how do we, how do we kind of push back on this narrative of renewables are the source of all problems? Like, what are those talking points? Because, like, in all these situations, it's it's complicated. It's not – there's no one simple answer. It's not one variable. Well, I think some of it – like, if you look into the storm, the winter storm that happened in Texas, the winter storm Uri, and you saw pictures – we talk about misinformation quite often here. Uh, you saw pictures of yeah. the frozen wind turbines. Like, oh, it was all the wind turbines' fault. But if you read the reports and the, the root cause analysis of how some of those things happened – it was um, non-insulated, you know, wellheads and and natural gas right. lines and some other things that these power plants right. went offline. So you're fighting against some misinformation there. That's one thing, but then there is also some reality to it. Um, distributed power to the grid, um, as I think we can all agree, is a good thing going forward. But we have to make sure that we can get that power to the grid, integrated into the grid, right. and then spread around. Right, so there's a few projects going on. I know um, there's a you know there's a big wind farm uh, in southern Wyoming that's been in play for 15 years, and it looks like they're finally going to get it built. But that's on the tail end of a three billion dollar power line bringing all that power to from Wyoming to California, Nevada, Arizona. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, so so there, that's going on. There's a couple other projects, um, big transmission lines uh, connecting grids back and forth across the Rocky Mountains and some other things. So. Um, you know, as these coal plants and stuff, and we go through our energy transition, start to come offline. To me, uh, I would just like to see more of the renewables, but but spread out, right? If you're you might not have wind in in central Iowa and a county north, you might not have it at that point in time. But if we can get a uh, the hybrid solution and we have some battery storage, and then we can get all those things um, tied into the grid in a smart way um, and upgrade that infrastructure then we're on a better way to alleviating some of these, you know, rolling blackouts and brownouts and whatnot. Rosemary, is any grid in the world really set up to go fully renewable right now? Um, I think that we're getting closer to that in some parts of Australia. I mean, obviously there are some pretty close to 100% renewable grids, like in, in Iceland, for example, but, you know, they're doing it a lot with um, anywhere that's using a lot of hydro and geothermal and geo. um, right. doesn't have these big, these big, challenges of the variable renewables grid but um the place that's furthest ahead on that is south australia they've got uh, i think over 60 percent renewables um, variable renewables they've got no hydro so it's just wind and solar um and they've reached over 60 percent over the last year um from from those sources they're connected to the rest of the australian grid but still you know 60 percent is a lot in a, a multi gigawatt scale grid it's the the most in the world um, mm. And then, yeah, Australia is moving 
as a whole is moving pretty fast in that direction. And we actually have really similar challenges to what you're anticipating for this summer in the the US is what we're actually right now, like as we record this, there's um, warnings that the next couple of days in Queensland and New South Wales that there will be um, there will be a shortfall in in supply if so, um, people don't either reduce their demand or if some generators don't come on. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, usually any time there's a crisis, um, conservatives will always blame renewables, and they are trying to do that this time, but it's hard because. Queensland has the most coal-dominated grid out of anyone and also has the most pub- um, yeah, publicly owned generation assets. Um, and New South Wales is the second most coal. And so they're the ones that are having the problems and the really renewable-dominated grids are, are not having the problems. So it's a harder, <laughs> a harder message for people that want to blame this one on renewables. Yeah, as an engineering podcast and having worked on a lot of engineering programs, you you can well imagine that the engineers and the staff that are working the transmission lines and the power production facilities, regardless of what they are, all realize what the difficulties are, right? They're not oblivious to this. They push out a report every year talking about summer outages, winter outages. They're on top of the situation. But it, it just feels like we're at the point now, we're now dealing in larger scale. So if I'm in Missouri and I got a power plant in Missouri, can I get my power to California? No. The answer is no. Is no. You really can't. So now we're dealing with things at a national level. And if the engineers are making decisions, it seems like to me we're at the federal level now. And some recent things happened at the, with uh, the federal government where the president is using the Defense Production Act to uh, throw about a half a billion dollars. And in, in, in the United States, a half a billion dollars is nothing. It's a drop on the bucket. But they're going to put some money behind solar, transformer and grid components, heat pumps, insulation, and electrolyzers for hydrogen fuel. Now, if we're really serious about having an electrical grid, handle these uh, sort of blackout situations and getting power generation on the grid and being more distributed, Joel, where solar and wind are in more random places than a a large power plant. Are we ever going to get there with uh, really a drop in the bucket in terms of finances? It doesn't seem like the federal government's on top of when you get transmissions lines installed. We need to uh, uh, connect these pieces together. It's like the federal government is not listening to the engineers that are telling them what this should look like. Yeah, reading into what you see with the the Defense Production Act that Biden is uh, encouraging now, this five hundred forty five million dollars in funds. To me, it looks like um, it, it kind of mirrors uh, what PTC funds are in wind, right? So right. they can use it. They can use it to uh, put in an order. The government can put an order from private industry, or they can use it to subsidize uh, via tax base or anything. It gives them the ability to right. do these things, but. But so now let's look at the offshore wind in the U.S. and and how the private industry has done this. We put these bids out and now all of these these projects are inked. And what it has done is allowed people to start building Jones Act vessels and start building quayside facilities for wind because that that work is coming and that money's flowing. So if I could if I could have a crystal ball, I would think take this five hundred and forty five million dollars and start and do it very visibly. Make it very visible to the to the 
private markets to see, okay, the government is starting to to put some cash into this, to put some money into this, to help move those things along as a small catalyst. Because $545 million, that's one, you know, if you just said, how much money do you have? That's one wind project. Like it's gone. Right. But it if is, you could right. spread that, spread that out for some high, you know, the, um, some hydrogen production things and some other, other, uh, markets that need it and you have it very visible, maybe it will, Oh, okay. The government is supporting this. The people are supporting this. It'll spur the private industry to kind of use it as a catalyst. And that's, that's my best hope for it. Well, and then there's always some piece in which the federal government has purview. There's only things, there's some things that the, only the federal government can do. And going across mm -hmm. state lines and putting large transmission lines in, when it comes to federal rules that are probably limiting that, they're the, they're the roadblock. And, and unless they're yeah. willing to do something about it, it won't change. Rosemary, I, I assume yeah. you have the same problem down in Australia that the federal government says a lot of things, but when it actually comes into implementation, it seems to not be doing the work. It's, it's like too difficult. You know what, until, you know, we just had a change of government. We talked about that last time, but until that point, we had a federal government that went out of their way to not talk a lot about, um, you know, anything. They certainly didn't have any bold vision for renewables. And it was the states that, that got on with the business of actually, right. um, you know, announcing and doing um, so yeah, it's interesting, but we definitely have the same transmission issues. I think that's a worldwide problem. Um, it's probably a good topic for another, um, episode actually in, in depth because there uh, is some interesting, there are some interesting solutions being tried to, to get, you know, remove some of the obstacles to rolling out transmission fast. Sure. Cause it's really hard. Cause you know, you've got to go through a lot of people's properties. I'm sure you yes. have the same, same, same problem, problem basically. And you, you can't just pick and choose which ones they've all got to you know they've all got to link up it's not like a wind farm where you could just you know put not put turbines on this person's place and put them somewhere else you're not going to like you know have a transmission line that that snakes around to yeah take care of what people um that which people want to be involved but i think if it, if it was up to me to make a big fast change i would put the transmission problem that needs to be solved, but I don't think it's going to be fast, even if you could solve the, you know, um, human element, I'd be working on which parts of the network are struggling and helping them to install a lot more rooftop solar or community solar community batteries so that they didn't always need as much, um, transmission into or out of that area. To me, that would be by far the fastest way to make a big impact. And, um, I know that there are big differences in how much, um, rooftop solar costs in Australia compared to the US. I think it's twice as much in the US and in Australia permitting will take one day and in the US it's commonly six months. Um, so there are some so definitely some bureaucratic things that, you know, would be perfect for a government, even a, a local government. I think it's um I think it's local government that causes a lot of these issues in the US. You know, if you want to solve your sure. <laughs> your city's energy yeah. problems, then help people to get solar um, cheaper and uh, yeah, like the the doubling in cost between Australia and the US. It's not because we pay half as much for our solar panels. It's it's because we pay half as much for you know all of the soft costs, everything else. So I think that that would be a really fast way you can make a difference in one year. You know, if you really got stuck into it. Well, I think we're going to come back to this transmission line. How we're going to support the grid? Uh, that's going to have to be a topic of conversation because we're kind of getting toward the breaking point here, and it doesn't feel like there is very little movement on it. So let's let's hit it. As I think one I of the know topics in the next couple somebody of weeks. working on that. Maybe. 
maybe we could interview um yeah, that'd be, that would be fantastic. Right, we're going to take a short break right here. And after the break, we're going to have Megan Rotondo, Service Development Manager of Onyx Insight. And Megan is a blade expert and also a blade sort of diagnosis expert. She's actually taking data from all kinds of wind turbines and putting brain power to it to do predictive uh, failure modes, which is really interesting. So after the break, Megan Rotondo of Onyx Insight. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Hey, Megan, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Megan Rotondo, everybody, from Onyx Insight. And, and Megan, you're a service, man service development manager for, at Onyx Insight with a really deep expertise in, in blade design. And we had talked previously <laughs> about all the things you've done, and it's remarkable, actually. You have done a lot of interesting blade things. And I get asked all the time, about, hey, what do I need to do to get into wind? Or if I want to design blades, what do I need to do? And I think your background is really ideal because it explains sort of the pieces you have to put together to be really good at uh, designing blades. So Megan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So you would, did you just give us a brief background of just your work experience and what your uh, educational experiences are? Sure, yeah, I come from the engineering world. So I went to Cornell and graduated um, with a master's of engineering um, in mechanical engineering, but my um, original undergrad was in civil. So I was always um, interested in structures and how to design, you know, big civil structures. Um, but also while at school, I was on a project team that builds, builds race cars. <laughs> and so naturally being on a project team, you work with composites. Uh, usually in the racing space, it's carbon fiber composites. So that's where I learned a little bit about composites and got pretty interested in them. So when you take my degree in kind of big civil structures and composites, um, the natural progression was to look at wind turbine blades. That's how I really started into looking at wind turbine blades is in my master's program. And in the U.S., um, one of the biggest um, OEMs in wind turbines is, is GE. So immediately kind of started looking at that and ended up at GE and a leadership program. Um, and that's where, you know, my entire career has started and ended up in, you know, uh, renewable energy and more specifically in blades due to my interest in composites. And from there, you know, I stayed in renewable energy. I worked for a Chinese OEM who has um, a design office in, in the U.S. And after that, um, Got, got an itch to kind of look at the operations and maintenance space outside of, you know, kind of the original design, um, kind of complete the life cycle of the product. Um, and I moved to Onyx Insight in the beginning of 2021 to start looking at the oper operations and maintenance for, for blades, um, damages, how to maintain them, how to repair them, um, and anything that could go wrong uh, with a blade. 
So you just you just started as, as a civil engineer, decided to be a mechanical engineer, got interested in composites. You start working in blades, which is actually a very typical story, and that they kind of find their way into blades and wind energy and really stick with it. But that means probably changing jobs a couple of times and doing a, a little bit of moving around and taking on uh, support tasks and just learning from the ground up. And I, that eventually leads you into the, the role you're in, which is more of a predictive maintenance RCA type role. And it, 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 now at Onyx Insight, which if you're not familiar with Onyx Insight, it's, it's a predictive maintenance company, essentially. Uh, and as everybody knows, has been doing a lot of things in drivetrain for a long time. So you, you walk into Onyx Insight, but Onyx Insight already does condition monitoring, right? They have a, just a whole plethora of options there. You want to describe sort of what Onyx Insight does? So Onyx is an interesting company. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, they come out of drivetrain. So vibration-based monitoring using accelerometers. It's pretty established field in, in most industries, um, but at the time when they'd come in, is a little bit new for wind. And Onyx has kind of got three parts to it. It has the hardware side, so our product like EcoCMS or EcoPitch, which are actually the physical hardware needed to monitor your gearbox, main bearing generator, um, and similar with EcoPitch to monitor pitch bearings. Um, so there's actually the physical hardware development that's owned by Onyx. And then of course with that, uh, there's software. So in order to, you can't just have the hardware, you need to take in the data and analyze it. Um, so Onyx has our own um, software platforms to do a multitude of things. Um, related to the drivetrain monitoring, there's a software to look at the analytics coming in from the accelerometer data, so the vibration data, manipulate it and be able to trend it, alarms. And we also have um, a product called AI Hub, which kind of takes in a multitude of data is a little more focused on answering, you know, answering the question of once you have the data, you have an alarm, now what do you do? Kind of trying to close that loop. Um, so trying to bring in multitudes of data for various components and track, you know, the repair cycle and learning um, from looking into the damage or alert or alarm that you're getting for your wind farm. Um, we also have Field Pro, which is like an inspection software, so that actually, you know, mobile device. You're out in the field as a tech, you know, doing an inspection. This came out of um, just the way Onyx works. It's kind of coming out of customer issues. Um, so naturally, if you're getting alerts about your gearbox, you need to go do a boroscope inspection. It was difficult to get, you know, quick data or you have a turbine, up, um, you have a tech up tower um, and you need to get some good data. So that was kind of built out of just being able um, to use your, your cell phone and have an app to take data um, and go through the, the tower and upload things to a database and it would come directly back to the engineers. Um, so that's the software side. And then the engineering side, which is where, where I sit at Onyx. So the company was really built out of design engineers um, originally from you know, the drivetrain side. Uh, and that's the basis for Onyx. We're not just a sensor company or a hardware company or just a software company with really good you know, development or analytics, we have wind turbine engineers in-house because we want to first develop the software that um, and hardware that actually solves problems. It's not just a nifty piece of hardware or software. Um, and then also, it also 
you know, you can dive into the physics of the problem. So you're not just looking at the, the high level data or analytics, you're actually understanding why these problems occur. And that adds that extra level um, to the analysis and vibration um, analysis that they did originally. Um, and now we're expanding and I'll get into that because um, yeah, I do blades. <laughs> but yeah, you kind of have to have that background. So you're not just saying that there's an alarm or an alert. You now have that extra level that Onyx can provide of, we've seen a lot of these, this is what um, this type of failure looks like, and this is what we recommend you do um, because of it. So that's where it comes into blades. So Onyx is looking into kind of full turbine condition monitoring. And as always, we start with engineering. So I joined to bring the blades expertise. We have ex electrical expertise in-house now and um, tower and foundation expertise as well and pitch bearings, of course. As one of the blade experts, and you just have a, a tremendous amount of experience, uh, everybody knows or pretty much everybody today is using drone data. And what you get is just a whole lot of pictures. And sometimes they're spliced together, sometimes they're not. Uh, it depends on who's doing the project, actually. And from that, it just is overwhelming, right? It's just a lot of data. But can you, are you able to sort of manipulate that data and look at it at a sort of a top level and say, hey, these are the kind of things we're looking for. These kind of blades have these issues and we're trying to, trying to just track like crack progression or even leading edge erosion. How, how does that fit into the AI hub uh, world? So currently it can bring in kind of the blade data that um, that is coming from, from a drone inspection company, um, usually focused on those that you want to repair. Um, the other piece that we're looking at, which is more of a high level, so currently right now, although I'd love to get craft progression in AI Hub, um, currently right now it's looking at a little bit more high level. So um, looking at maybe an aggregation. So part of part of AI Hub has like a data exploration space um, where you could bring in more of the high level data. So looking at maybe number of turbines or amount of um, number of blades that have damages or the amount of damages on those blades um, tied with maybe some SCADA data or number of emergency stops that were on that turbine. That's more of the data exploration space. Um, and that's more of a high, a high level. Um, there are definitely some more detailed analysis um, on that track progression level or trending, which is not currently into AI Hub, it's, uh, yeah, a lot of players in the space don't know yet what to do um, with all this data. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of really good data out there. Uh, I mean, we've been, uh, the industry has now been doing drone inspections for about five years. And along with those images is coming that metadata, which is, you know, where you'll find the length and width and location and defect type and surface of the blade. and that data is just massive. And the, pr the problem with that data is it's very dirty data, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, it's subjective a lot of times. So one company or even person within a company looking at that data will say it's a severity three. And then another um, company will say it's severity four. And then, you know, the owner operator goes in and changes it to a severity two. <laughs> so there's a lot of variation in that. Um, there's also variation in the location. 
Um, so it may say one year it's at 27 meters along the blade span. And then the next year, the same company, the same drone, just from, I guess, errors in the, the location of, you know, where the drone is and how it's sizing it, you know, it'll say it's at 27.8 meters. Also sizing, sometimes when you draw the box around the crack, you may say, oh, well, there's a bunch of little ones. We'll just draw a big box. That's one defect. And then the next year, someone's like, you know what? These are all little cracks. I'm going to draw five <laughs> little boxes. So if you're trying to compare, you know, how did that crack progress just on a data level? So you're not physically, because you want to look at 100 cracks. So you're not going to look through each image. Um, you want to do some data analysis. You want to do some trending. That's going to confuse the, the trending because it'll say that you had one large crack, even though, you know, there's nothing to tell you that there's a multiple cracks in there um, versus, you know, next year it turned into 10 small cracks. So it's really hard. You know, you have to think of clever ways to normalize that data. Um, you can try to do this on area or kind of, you know, where it's located. You have tolerances to handle the, you know, span location issue. So there's a lot that can be done, but I think the industry hasn't quite cleaned up the data enough to to move forward with that like really detailed crack progression. Yeah, it's it's very manually intensive work to do. And so is is the the key then really standardization? I know that that has popped up a lot in the last year or so, just describing what damage is and everybody using the same definition of damage. It doesn't there is no standard right now. And which, which makes it hard, right? I mean, how do you, how do you have predictive tools if you don't have the underlying data and consistency in that data? And, and and what do we do about it? That's a great question. And I think coming in from design and my engineering background, uh, design engineering, I was all for a standard. I was like, we we should have a standard. <laughs> you know, this makes sense. When, you know, a crack is a crack. Um, we should have a standard. I think. <laughs> looking at the damages and actually being in the industry um, and really thinking about it a little more deeply, I think it's more difficult than it seems um, at surface level um, because of the way blades are designed. Um, blades are designed with loads envelopes. Um, and even those, even those envelopes are statistically determined. So there's a lot of probability and estimations. And then sites, you know, are cited based on their own load envelope, which is determined by MetMast. And again, this is wind, so tons of variability. So you may take one turbine with one loads envelope. This is just one piece of puzzle. You're going to put it at your site, and that blade is going to see its site-specific loads. And of course, that site, you know, site A over here just made the load envelope. Like it's, it's got a little bit of margin, and it's just fitting. So it's seeing pretty high loads for its design. The next site, yeah, they have they have a little bit of margin. The the wind is doesn't have as much variability. There's as much turbulence, um, but you know, it made sense to site and put that same exact turbine and blade design over here at site B. So then, if those two blades have a, a crack that's of similar size in a similar location, so a standard would say, okay, you have a trailing edge transverse crack on your you know, manufacturer a turbine 
um, which are designed to class, you know, three low, you know, all these standards that we work off of. Um, you have these two sites, site A and site B. If you standardize it, you would say, you know, either always repair when it reaches 100 millimeters or, you know, let it go until it reaches 300 millimeters. If you try to set this generic standard, what you'll have, what I could definitely see happen based on, you know, how these blades are designed and how composites work is site A, you know, doesn't repair it because that's what, you know, our standard came up with. And then it, it progresses immediately to a half, in, you know, half a meter crack, major damage. And then site B doesn't repair it and it doesn't really grow, you know, maybe in three years they, they get to it and it's no big deal. And this is the same, the same blade, <laughs> the same crack. So you, when, you, when you think through this logically is this is what I want to standardize, it, it's totally different growth rates. So I, there's, there's so much challenge and nuance and detail when you start diving in. Um, to the actual workflow of what happens in these decisions and the physics of, you know, where turbines and blades are sited, the different load variability, the different fatigue cycles they see, um, it, it makes it more challenging. I think to some level, some kind of standard would be helpful, um, but I can see where it will just cause more problems to, to try to be rigid. From an outsider's viewpoint, that all seems crazy, right? That basically every blade, it's its own living, breathing thing. And it needs its own separate diagnosis almost. When you see a crack on a blade, it's not the same as a, yeah, in Colorado, it's not the same as Massachusetts. They're just not going to be the same result. And so how does that drive then? I mean, how do, how do you then incorporate that into a sort of predictive model? Is there even a really a way to do that? Or we just need a lot of smart people like you <laughs> looking at a lot of photos to figure out what ought to happen next? There's definitely stuff, you know, more standardization and more analysis we can do on a high level um, to help with predictive maintenance using lots and lots of data um, and kind of establishing baselines in terms of, you know, what regions on certain models and certain areas, you know, you can try to aggregate if you have enough data and provide kind of some baseline of experience. So I think that data analysis is still very important. Um, but then there's always that second layer. I think there always will be an engineer who needs to look at that and make sure that makes sense. Trying to, you know, go at your, at least for your own farm, establish, you know, your risk tolerance, um, what makes sense, you know, for your site and your risk level, and then kind of start tracking your data. And targeting in on a few key issues. So there's different ways of looking at this. Um, and I think it's site specific and, and owner operator specific. So is the key then consistent monitoring? And blades are weird, right? Because there really is no blade, active blade monitoring today. There's nothing inside the blades telling you about the structure at all, at least not on a large scale. So is it then every year, particularly early on, you need to be doing some drone inspections of every blade. Is that where it needs to go? It's just so when you get to years five, six, eight, ten, where it really starts to matter, you you have this progression. Because with, with without having that initial data, you just you don't want to start at year five, right? I mean, you, you just lose the progression, which is what you're using to do your analysis with. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of a hot topic because there's there's pros and cons, and it's that typical you know like optimization problem where. Um, if you do too many repairs too early, you're kind of spending too much money on that repair. And then if you're 
waiting until you get, you know, a catastrophic failure, you're going to spend way too much money because you've let it go too long. Um, the tricky thing is finding that middle point. Um, so that's, and so it, it really does depend. And that's where, that's where the high level analytics can help. Um, so understanding just generally, you know, what's the load level, what's the side level um, from the get go, you know, are you at a high, high lo highly loaded site? Um, you know, lots of turbulence, turbulence intensity, you know, um, lots of um, precipitation for erosion, having kind of failure, just general failure rates, um, which Onyx does a little bit of work in uh, as well. Just understanding from a really high level, what what's the failure rate based on certain site conditions or um, turbine models or design types, understanding what those failure modes are from a high level um, may determine when you start your initial inspection. Um, I think within the warranty period, it's good to have a baseline, um, but you shouldn't be seeing, unless there's some major, major design issue, you're really not gonna be seeing, you know, those little cracks that are gonna grow um, throughout the lifetime, starting from year one. Um, what, you know, I'm kind of learning and gaining from the industry is seeing that year five is when you may start to see things pick up and year 10 is definitely when you're gonna be seeing that, the smaller cracks starting to pro progress on a fatigue basis. That you can maybe trend and, and and take a look at. So it really depends on if you're concerned. You've seen, you know, that model have a certain that blade have a certain failure on someone else's farm, or you're concerned about the manufacturing quality because you did an assessment and the factory wasn't up to you know high high standards. Then you may want to start your inspections early to catch any kind of des design or manufacturing issue that would happen early in its life. Well, that's really that's really important, right? You're bringing this whole bunch of information to all the listeners out there. This kind of data isn't readily available to a lot of people, so it only comes through experience, right? So where does this all get hashed out at? Where does the industry sit down with itself and say, you know what? You need to be doing a third of your farm every year scans, and that's the industry standard. Where does that, where does, who, who leads that conversation? Where does that happen? Add. Oh, I wish I knew. Most people would look to the certification bodies to, to lead that. No matter who leads the effort, it's going to need to be from those who deal with operations and maintenance. So the you know owner and operator who carry a lot of the risk. And um, I think the OEMs who have, you know, they also carry risk and do service contracts who could provide valuable insight as well um, to the maintenance. But either way, I think it probably will be need to be led from you know a, an independent kind of standpoint. So a certification body who deals with multitudes of <laughs> every every you know um, owner operator, every OEM um, to kind of lead this effort, and then bringing in the input from basically every everyone who has to deal with that. So all the ISPs like Onyx and and various others who assess the damages should be involved as well as obviously the owner operators who have to repair those damages repair i mean the whole industry needs to come together but it is it is tricky because it is valuable data um you know it takes a lot of work and a lot of money and resources to get that data um so i don't think it's going to be easy <laughs> i don't think it's going to be easy to have even if it was through someone like a certification body to bring all this together um I know there's been attempts to do that, um, usually on a regional basis. I know 
the EU has a program that's looking at cost of maintenance, uh, and they have um, an independent service provider leading that, um, just based on you know government grants. And in the U.S., you know, organizations, nonprofit or, or yeah, independent organizations, research institutions have led a couple of these efforts, um, and probably in other parts of the world as well. Um, so I think on a regional basis, it's a little bit easier to kind of narrow in and, and look at it, but it is difficult because you can't get everyone, you can't force everybody <laughs> to come to the table and give up, give up their data. Right. And is it really giving, is it, is it giving up data or is it really just setting that sort of baseline? And there's a big difference between those two, right? I mean, you're not giving it away. You say, you know, every three years you need to be inspecting your turbines. That's, <laughs> that's not deep information, right? You know, if it was, hey, these Siemens uh, blades have an issue when they have wind gusts of X, you know, that's a, that's a little deeper, right? That's way down into the noise. And, and yeah, I would consider that to be sort of private information. But I mean, we just don't need to have that sort of basic infrastructure for people like you to know what we're looking at, right? Because there is, if you're missing data, it's really hard for you to help. Right? You need data to be useful to the operators. Yeah, and that's that's why you know we try to work with as many customers as possible to to understand it from a broader. You know, that's a benefit, honestly, of being in uh, an an ISP independent. Um, is you're not stuck with one fleet. It's great to see what's happening across you know the industry and globally too. Um, so understanding what's happening in various turbines. Um, and that's, that's definitely, it's, it's difficult though, because even something as simple as that, you can probably do only a third a year on your younger turbines may not be applicable to, to some models, you know? So, so yeah, it's, it's a very high level approach and that's, I think how the industry has gotten where, where they've got to, which is pretty much each owner operator decides on their own. Um, to the best of their ability, what they want to do, and they reach out to various, you know, companies like Onyx or any other ISP, and who deals with blades, and that, and kind of says, "This is what I'm doing," and then, you know, we we say, "Oh yeah, that's a great idea," or you know, they may come to us saying, "This is what we're doing, and we're having a lot of failures," or "This is what we're doing, and our budget is super high. We want to figure out how to make it. You know, we want to optimize this. We want to reduce our blade maintenance budget." And it's very, it's very specific. So it could be beneficial to have a standard that that's the high level. And, you know, and I think that's where people like, they like to have some kind of baseline is, is a good recommendation. But then when it comes down to it for your site, you're probably going to have to to optimize if you want to, you know, maximize the amount of, you know, performance and minimize the downtime and extract all the value that you can. You will have to be site specific. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a very interesting viewpoint of it, and obviously because you get to see a variety of different turbines and turbine problems, and you get to see U.S. and outside the U.S. what's happening, you have a very unique perspective on it. And um, I think this is where you know, Onyx Insight adds a lot of value. Is honestly, is it just because it's not tied to a particular operator or OEM? It, it you guys get to see everything. And that's the benefit. And, and when we, we all show up at the same conferences. So we're at conferences and we're, and we're all kind of battling back and forth a little bit. It does seem to revolve around this consistency, just being consistent. 
and let's try to raise the bar a little bit for an industry. And I know, and everybody's working hard to do that, but sometimes we don't really set that floor. We don't really share a lot of information. So it makes it hard to, to do that. And, you know, we, we need a lot of people, more people like you, Megan, honestly, is that when you bring a lot of expertise to the conversation and that makes this, the discussions that much more uh, focused and enjoyable as an engineer. I mean, it, it, those top level sort of discussions around the edges don't really matter. If we're talking about really trying to reduce cost, then we need engineers deeply involved that actually know something and have firsthand experience to come back and say, Alan, that's crazy. Or yeah, that, that's great. We should be doing more of that. And, and this is why we want to have people like you in the program which is why you're here today is that we're trying to get this message out to people like, Hey, there's, there are so many brilliant engineers working on these really difficult problems way deeper than we would really think about. And it takes that sort of expertise in companies like Onyx Insight. They're going to be making the difference of a renewable future. It's the way it is. Operations and maintenance has so much opportunity and especially in blades. Um, there's a lot of smart people out there trying to figure out what we should do. Um, to, to just minimize this, you know, blade repair budgets have ballooned and, and it's just because we need to, we need to really understand what's happening out there and, and dive a little deeper than, yeah, just the high level. Oh, we just, you know, we wait till a blade falls off or we, we're repairing every crack. So we, there's a lot of nuance in there. Yeah. We, we've heard those conversations and it's a little scary, but yeah, we've, we've heard that because it is a way, it's, it is one way to manage it. We may not the way I would manage it, but it, it is a way to manage it. And Onyx is growing, right? So Onyx Insight is actually, uh, how many engineers work there right now? How many people are working at Onyx right now? A little over 100. We might even have crossed the 120 mark at this point. Because we also have, I mean, we have monitoring engineers and, you know, consulting engineers and then software developers of software engineers. So there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot in the, in the works, but Onyx is definitely growing and um, Blades, we're, we're uh, looking for, for good blade engineers um, because they are a very hot topic and uh, we have a lot of blades work. <laughs> and you're, you're, you're based in Colorado. Is Onyx Insight just in Colorado? No, we have, we have offices globally. So we're, you know, Colorado is our U.S. office and then we're headquartered in Nottingham in the U.K. Uh, and we also have offices in Spain, Korea, Australia, China. We cover all the regions. It's a truly global company. So if, if I'm a blade engineer and and... I want to get to Onyx Insight. I want to reach out to Megan. Megan, how do people find you? Through our website is is a really good way. Um, so yeah, you can just go to onyxinsight.com and and reach out to contact us and our sales our sales team and sales engineers will definitely get you in touch with myself um, uh, or any of our other engineers across the globe for for any issues that you may have, blades or otherwise. Megan, this has been a great discussion today. I really appreciate you having me on the on the program and let's stay in touch because I, I know these blade issues are going to continue on. And, and as the industry evolves, I want to get your feedback on how things are going. So this is it's really great to have you in the program today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was an awesome opportunity. Lightning may be a force majeure, but lightning damage isn't. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage to your blades. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, 
and schedule a call. WeatherGuard is proud to be engineer-owned and operated in the USA. So big thanks to Megan Rotondo of Onyx Insight. Uh, great amount of information from Megan, and uh, we'll have Megan back on the show hopefully soon. Switching subjects slightly, because Rosemary brought up the discussion of localized energy storage. There's a company called Energy Dome, and if you haven't seen this online, there's, a, there's some YouTube videos showing how this works, but they're basically created a CO2 battery storage facility. So they, they, they are just completing a facility in Sardinia, Italy. It's a 20 megawatt, 200 megawatt hour installation. It's going to be fully functional by 2023, but it's up and running at this point. And it's a system that can store energy for up to 10 hours at roughly half the cost of lithium ion batteries. And it's a closed loop system. So Joel, what they do is they take carbon dioxide, they compress it, they cool it, they turn it into a liquid, they put it in storage tanks. That's the storage part. When they want to use that stored energy, they expand it back up through a turbine. It spins a, it spins a, a turbine to make electricity. Therefore, you have a closed system storage battery that's not chemically based, so to speak, like a lithium ion, but it's actually sort of physical gas compression. Was it a gas cycle, essentially? Yeah, it's a yeah. gas cycle system. Uh, and the reason I bring it up is that, like Rosemary was saying, like in the United States, we need to have local energy storage to handle these ups and downs of the grid. How do you do that quickly? I don't know if there's enough capacity in the world to build batteries fast enough to have localized energy storage. But carbon dioxide is everywhere. We could build carbon dioxide storage area. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. Joel, does this make any sense, particularly in a country as big as the U.S.? Yeah, there's a couple of things I really like about it. One of them being this technology isn't all brand new, right? These processes oh, true. or these ind individual true. processes are known, but they've you know conglomerated them into a novel process to do this battery storage. So there's no bottlenecks for development. Uh, it's it's we understand how to do it already, and of course, like you said, we're not uh, going to have to mine something or anything like this. Uh, CO2 right. is readily available, um, and I think it could be expanded to different types of, of gases as well. Um, but sure. um, So I like I like that side of it. I think the other thing I'd like to see, and this is a, a an energy storage issue, I think, uh, across the industry. I think we have to get away from calling them batteries. And the reason being mm. is, is battery from a technical sense works. But when you're talking to the general public, they think of battery as something that's a physical, like a lithium ion battery. Like when someone says battery right. storage, if I say battery storage to a guy down the street, he thinks of how many, you know, Duracell <laughs> D-sized batteries can you put in one building? Um, so, well, so I like the, uh, I, I really like the concept here, but I think I don't like CO2 battery. I like CO2 energy storage facility. And I think that would do better for mm. it. But I, but, but as it sits, they say it's ready to go and we can install it and, um, Large quantities, the supply chain is, or large, you know, capacities. So the supply chain is there. Yeah. The technology is developed. I, I see we hit the ground running with it. Rosemary Australia has probably already built similar things to this. I know pumped hydro is the, the great savior in Australia, and rightly so. It's pretty simple, right? You pump water up, you store energy in the water because of gravity, and then you let it come back down and create electricity again. So it is a yeah, quote unquote, like Joel was saying, it is a battery, but more like an energy storage system. 
it's pretty effective, isn't it? It's, yeah. It seems simple enough. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the areas that I work on a lot with my, my consulting company, Padlet Consulting. Um, and I, I look at a lot of the different different options that you have. And um, also sometimes I'm designing systems for, you know, people that um, have a big, you know, off-grid off project, uh, energy intensive project. So it's really interesting, like, to compare when you look, you know, on paper at, at what a system you know pro systems pros and cons are compared to when you're actually trying to integrate it um and when i'm designing something i always end up either recommending lithium-ion batteries if it's relatively short duration storage needed and pumped hydro if um if the um terrain allows and if it's a uh, longer duration storage that's needed or you know like overall system reliability because they're just much much cheaper so i know that this energy dome says it'll be half the storage cost of lithium-ion battery but i uh, let's wait and see, but I do note that there are plenty of auctions for storage durations, um, storage projects with durations similar to that, um, especially in California. There's been a lot recently, and lithium-ion battery um, projects have won those. You know, it's a reverse auction, so you know they're bidding in the cheapest for yeah, even um, at least eight hours now. Um, in nearly every case, there has been occasionally some alternative technologies that make it to the last the last um you know little bit but you know there's nothing stopping energy dome from um bidding on these projects and if they could really come in at half the cost of lithium ion then they would be winning them so um yeah as i say i'm I'm skeptical about that the problem with um like like joel said i I like this technology because it's uses a lot of aspects um like not new aspects like we've been able to compress and uncompress um fluids for you know a long time compressed air energy storage is one that's fairly mature fairly mainstream um and the you know the co2 version has some advantages relative to that in terms of the the density of the energy that's stored um but they do suffer from low efficiency compared to you know lithium-ion battery will be around 90 percent pumped hydro at least above 80 percent um and yeah compressed fluids you know, uh, when you actually see working systems and take real data, it's it's quite a lot less than that so far. But mm. there are, is scope to improve it somewhat. But again, like if you're using mature technologies, then you've got less scope to <laughs> make massive improvements in technology. So, yeah, I think I think it'll be useful for places where you can't have pumped hydro. And, you know, if we do see lithium ion prices, um continue to increase from you know supply chain problems then i think we'll need a variety and this would be one of the potential ones that could you know find a fairly big niche i was just thinking as you were speaking there rosemary of uh, and this is a, expanding the topic a little bit but um i've been talking with quite a few people involved in the carbon sequestration storage uh co2 over here in the united states and i'm thinking about this is 20 megawatt 200 megawatt hour plant uh can supply you know a uh, storage for eight hours what if we expanded this thing in a, a grand 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 scale to the point where we're using the compressed gas that's stored in a salt dome under the sur- under the surface of the earth and all right. of a sudden this has turned into a 500 megawatt um facility right it's just, just a thought if it's doable or not we do things big in america yeah they are doing that with um compressed air there are some projects where they plan to um use a salt cavern as their storage and definitely for hydrogen that's one of the the leading mm-hmm. ways that people are planning to store long durations of energy yeah. yeah just on the energy dome website and they've got um 67 
66.7 kilowatt hours per cubic meter. So yeah. um, you can see, you know, from that how much space you would need for how much energy. And um, I, I don't know if you actually asked it, but it was, I thought you were going to <laughs> ask if it could be, you know, like a way of sequestering CO2 out of the atmosphere. And for that, I, I would expect that it's not going to be a meaningful no. amount of um, CO2 sequestration. But I definitely hope that they, you know, take it from the atmosphere rather than making it specifically for this purpose. Right, right. You know, that would be a good use for some of the CO2 from direct air capture. Um, but I don't think it will be a lot. <laughs> Active projects of that sort, right? There's a You guys have heard of air products, right? They, they supply sure. gases and air for, all over the place. They've got a $4.5 billion project going on in Louisiana right now. That is going to be it's going to be CO two sequestration, hydrogen storage, salt dome, all all of these things that we just spoke of, um, and the DOE's behind that one as well. But it's or four and a half billion dollars for this de- a development of this sort. Well, I was just listening over the weekend to a a firm that makes diamonds, artificial diamonds, but they're using uh, CO two pulled from the air. That was their claim to fame. So they're using CO2 pulled from Climeworks, and then they put it into their little diamond-making machine to make artificial diamonds that are pretty close to mined diamonds. And, I th- and, and they, they consider themselves to be carbon negative, right? So they're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and turning it into diamonds. That was why it was a, a green technology. That cannot be, right? How much energy do you must need to make something so hot and apply so much pressure to turn carbon into diamond, make C13, is what, C13, C14? That can't be (laughs) energy neutral at the least. It may be carbon negative, maybe, but it's not energy. And it, it just seems weird to hear some of these things pop up because... Yeah, but you've really hit the nail on the the head for the problem with the vast majority of these trendy carbon uses um, that they add so much energy use to and even direct air capture, you you know, like the amount of energy that you need to to do it. Yeah, you can source it from renewables, but um, you could also, you know, we don't have enough renewables to do all the things we really need with it. And yeah. I mean, my biggest thing with the the, the diamond um, capture is, you know, we need to remove gigatons of CO two from the atmosphere, and we there's a reason why we measure diamonds and carrots and <laughs> yeah. not gigatons. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news.